Good evening. In the Confessions of St. Augustine, he writes, Do we love anything except what is beautiful? What is a beautiful thing? What is beauty? What is it that attracts us and wins us over to the things we love? Unless there were grace and beauty in them, they could not move us. The second reading we have this evening for the Mass is three verses long. But for the purpose of tonight's homily, I want to shorten that to two verses and just focus on the 15th and 16th verses of the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. Verse 15 begins, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. Now, our lectionary says tested, but the term in Greek is really pressured or tempted. The author in the epistle to the Hebrews is telling us that Christ the Lord, in his humanity, felt the pull of temptation in every way, yet without sin. In every way, says the writer, not in some matters, in all. The incarnate second person of the most blessed trinity fell the pull of temptation to every sin. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a humbling and comforting idea. Though without giving in to his temptations, our Lord has experienced the immense tug of all the various temptations that we feel, individually, all of them. And some of us face temptations which are different than others. But Christ the Lord felt them all, and he overcame them all. And thus, the author to the letter to the Hebrews writes that he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So knowing this, I'd like to take a moment to consider temptation itself. And for this, we can return to that passage I just gave you from Augustine. Again, he writes, Do we love anything except what is beautiful? Unless there were a grace and beauty in them, they could not move us. In every desire, both our pure desires and those which are temptations to sin, the driving motive is always love. It has to be. Love of something good, something graceful, something beautiful. Love of a thing worth having. Otherwise, we wouldn't desire it. So therefore, the root of all our temptations to sin is ultimately a desire for a good thing. A perverted and a skewed concept of a good, something that's less than the perfect goodness of God, but a good nonetheless. The person tempted to sin is ultimately lacking something they desire, or rather they're lacking something that's going to fulfill them, and so they're unfulfilled and desiring it. There's a hunger for that which will satisfy the longing of the soul, and so man in his weakness and in his imprudent manner reaches out for the quickest fix there is. He's coaxed by the enemy, the father of lies, who presents the sinful act as the fulfilling option. But ultimately, it's an option that will leave us still hungry, more hungry, perhaps, because our desire will have increased until it becomes ravenous, 
starving for the good thing we require because we were never satisfied. And thus St. Augustine reflects further in his early life of sin, and he writes, I sought for something to love, for I was in love with love. There was a hunger within me for a lack of that inner food, which is yourself, my God. Now this, of course, is the answer to how our Lord was able to combat every temptation, right? The hunger of his human nature was always fed by the presence of his most heavenly Father, who is the principle of goodness itself, the only true fulfillment of the soul. But for our purposes, let us reflect on our own temptations and ask ourselves, what is at the root of our longing? What is the good we desire in the sin of lust, for example? Right? Is there evil in intimacy? No. Christ himself shared intimacy with his apostles, even more with St. John and his most blessed mother. But the perverted longing for intimacy is what we call lust. A desire that, if fulfilled, leaves us still empty. The face on the screen, the unnamed person in the street, the person at the other end of a text conversation, the one-time hookup, all of those, right? They're empty, unfulfilled, because they're not really intimacy, the sharing of hearts. Now, examples could be given from every one of the capital sins, right? I'm not going to go through them all. But the point is made, there's a longing in our temptations for something which ultimately is not evil, Right? The longing is for something that will satisfy us. But until we can name the thing that's going to do that, we're destined to continually seek the closest fruit, right? The low-hanging fruit and grab it. Now, it's easy, right? You can guess what is the Christian answer, right? I'm going to tell you that the thing we truly long for is God, right? You probably have figured that out by now. But you may ask, if that's so, and I know what it is I truly long for, why do I still sin? Why do I give in to my temptations? Because the truth is, you don't long for God. Right? Your soul is longing for him, but your heart is untrained. Or rather, it is trained by sin to seek sin. Right? You know, they just made that, um, this isn't not my homily, but I just thought about it. They made those Coke Zero sugars, right? And I, I haven't bought a soft drink in two years. And I go to the grocery store and I buy a box of those Coke Zero stuff because there's no calories, right? There's no guilt with it. And Father Augustine's sitting there in the kitchen watching me, telling me that if I keep drinking those, I'm going to have a taste for it again, right? And he's right, okay? It's the way it works, right? Because we train ourselves to desire certain things. So this is the aggravating part of the process, especially if we're really serious about overcoming temptation. We have to retrain ourselves, our heart. And to do this, we have to invest ourselves in both light and in severe measures as they're necessary. So the first part of our retraining is to remove what the church calls the near occasion of sin. Those moments, places, conversations, persons, conditions which will lead us into sin. We have to learn to recognize these moments. Ask ourselves, what is the situation like when I do X, right? When we can recognize these moments, 
were able to eradicate them, point for point. Like a doctor will look for symptoms in order to treat a disease, we have to look for the symptoms of our sin. But we can't leave the heart famished, right? If a child is going to keep eating candy and the parent says, that's it, you just can't eat anymore, the child's going to die. That's not how it works. We can't starve ourselves. We're desiring something, right? But as long as we're permitted to live in this earthly life, our humanity is going to continually require something to fill us, right? We require air, food, water. We have to feed our heart, but we can choose how to feed it. So if we remove the near occasion of sin, we can present God in its place, train our heart with prayer, with daily prayer, Situate yourself before a crucifix or a holy image in your house that you should have in your house. Or better yet, come to church, come to the Adoration Chapel, place yourself before the Lord in his Eucharistic presence. No minute is wasted in his presence. It may appear fruitless to you at first, but we have to train the heart to desire that time, to require that time, right? It's like when couples who are having a problem in marriage decide that they're going to just go on a vacation together, right? Or they got to let the kids go with grandparents so they can have a date for the first time in two years, right? That's what they need. They need that moment together. Words aren't really necessary, right? Aim for 15 minutes of your day at first, right? Try to focus on the cross in your house or in the tabernacle in the church, whatever it is. You're going to become distracted. That's okay. As soon as you realize you're distracted, refocus yourself, keep going. Set a timer, 15 minutes. Keep doing this until the time you have set for yourself has passed. Be intentional about making that time, and you're going to gradually train yourself, right? That's how any sort of athlete has to train themselves, right? My mother has been, uh, had two knee replacements, and she says she does her physical therapy, and I see her at home, and she, you know, bends her knee like once and then says she's done. Okay, that's not going to work, you know? You've got to do everything they're telling you to do, or it's, it's, gonna not, it's not going to work, right? So that's why I tell people, don't just say, I'm going to do 15 minutes, Set a timer, and you're done in 15 minutes, right? So that's two things you can do. Remove the near occasion to sin. Learn to pray. The third is accept your limitations. The Lord is greatly pleased by our efforts to grow in love of him and to root out sin in our lives. When we fall, and we're going to fall again and again, it's far more pleasing to him that we simply pick ourselves back up and keep going than to wallow in our sadness, feel ashamed, and not do anything about it. Right? Blessed Jordan of Saxony, he's the guy that succeeded St. Dominic as the master of the order of preachers. He writes in one of his letters, You will fight with prudence if you set out to subdue your carnal nature, not hastily, but little by little, advancing by measured steps in the way of the virtues, not trying to fly, but climbing cautiously up the scale of perfection till at length you come to the summit of all perfection, Jesus Christ. Act always with moderation, for only the love of God knows neither measure or moderation. And that love is nourished not by afflicting the flesh, but by holy desires and by loving contemplation. We have the promise of St. Paul. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. That's what St. Paul says. And while we don't know what our limit is, God knows it. St. Augustine writes, I do not know which temptations I can resist and which I cannot. Even so, there is hope because God is faithful. 
God is not unaware of our burdens and temptations. He sympathizes with them in every way. He is the only one who can fill our longings of the heart because he's the only one that knows it. Thus, we cannot let ourselves be defeated when we fall. Always get back up immediately. Turn to him with all your heart and refocus. Go back to prayer. Go back to the sacraments. Go back to confession, whatever it takes. And that's my fourth point, confession, right? I've been talking about that for three weeks now. It's impossible, impossible for us to progress anywhere in virtue without the assistance of grace. Man is just not capable of it, right? He's not capable by his own means to achieve any level of perfection. Think about last Sunday's gospel. The apostles questioned the Lord and said, who then can be saved? Christ says, with man it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible to God. Grace. That's what it takes. If we attempt to defeat sin without God, we're going to fail, right? It's like sending a soldier into war with nothing in his hands. You're going to fail. But if we continually and without hesitation persist, present ourselves to the throne of grace over and over and over again in the sacrament of confession, then each and every fall of ours becomes a defeat of the enemy and of sin. Each one of our personal sins are radically transformed by the blood of the Lord, wiped clean, and made a defeat of Satan, who tried to defeat us. And thus we can progress another step up the mountain towards the fullest fulfillment of our heart, which is God. And therefore writes the, letter, the author to the letter of the Hebrews, let us confidently approach the throne of grace and receive mercy and find help, find grace for timely help. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever.